You were listening to a message from The Exchange in Pearl, Mississippi. To find out more about The Exchange, go to www.theexchange.cc. Uh, well, today uh, we do celebrate as Americans another year of independence, another year of freedom, of living in the nation that we live in. You know, I can honestly say today that I'm, I'm proud to be an American. I'm grateful for the many people, even a part of our church family, who have um, served, who do serve, who've maybe even given their lives to give us the freedoms that we get to experience as a people, as families, and, and even as a church today. And so, you know, I, I believe that the freedom and opportunities we have, um, they do make America a great nation, far from a perfect nation, but in many ways we get to experience the joys and the benefits of the the freedom and the independence of our country. But you know, as Americans, it's so easy to get caught up in the chase of what many have called the American dream. Uh, For some people, the American dream means freedom. It means opportunities that maybe in other places and nations people wouldn't get. I think for that, we need to be grateful, all of us. But I think also in the same way, um, there's another side of the American dream that can create in us um, this desire, this feeling that life needs to look and feel and happen in a certain way. That, that, that I would be the American dream. We can slip into this pursuit that our, our culture says that these certain things will fulfill you and complete you. When in reality, when you really get down to the bottom of it, there's many of those things will not complete you and fulfill you. Things like um, comfort or approval or perfectionism or just more stuff. And so often, um, there's a part of our so-called American dream that's created a pursuit of things that at the end of the day will leave us empty. And really, in many ways, are more of a myth than they are a dream. And so on so many levels, we could say that the American dream in a lot of times is ultimately lived out as the American myth. And so today we're kicking off a new series. We're going to kind of talk throughout the month of July about this idea of the American myth. This pursuit of the false American dream has caused our culture to really be obsessed with a lot of different things. One of the things I want to lean in today is this thought um, that you should live your best life now. Anybody heard that phrase recently? Okay, hashtag live your best life now. A lot of people are saying that. And the reality is our culture sells us that. We see it everywhere on advertisements, whether it's billboards or commercials or all over social media, live your best life. Now uh, people will sell you medicines or the vitamins or the, the latest workout routine. Why? So that you can live your best life. And uh, there's actually people even making money off of this desire to live your best life. In fact, there's companies who will help you live your best life, even if you can't afford your best life, just so you can show that you're having your best life. Okay, stay with me. Like there are companies now that will stage fake vacation photos of you and your, your spouse or your family so that you can show that you're living your best life. Like, this is a real thing. Like, don't look at me like I'm crazy. It's a real thing. All they need is you to mail them $49.95, all right, and a picture of your family, and they'll stage a fake vacation photo of you in your destination of choice. Like, you pick it. New York, Paris, Australia, Las Vegas. They'll stage so you can do what? So you can share that bad boy on social media, all right, to show everybody how you're doing what? Living your best life now. How is it that we as a culture got to this place where we're so obsessed with this living out of this version of the American dream? So in this series, here's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about how anything that you ultimately chase more than you chase Jesus is in so many ways a myth or even what Scripture might call an idol. 
So today we're going to begin the series by talking about um, a pursuit that probably a lot of us have been on at some point in our life, including myself, and that is the endless pursuit of comfort. The endless pursuit of comfort. If you have a copy of Scripture, open up with me to 1 John chapter 1. That's where we're going to start today. 1 John uh, chapter 1. If you have a hard copy of Scripture, that's going to be towards the back of your Bible. If you have a digital copy, it's the bottom of the scroll, all right? Uh, We'll put some verses on the screen also for you to follow along with where we're going to be. If you know anything about uh, 1 John, uh, I'm just going to go ahead and give you a warning today that that some of the verses that we're going to read, some of the places we're going to go today, all right, are going to be a little bit of a gut punch, all right? Everybody ready for that? where you put a burger on your gut, all right, you're going to get a gut punch from Scripture today, but it's all going to be good. Man, as God teaches us, 1 John, uh, written by John, uh, John was one of Jesus' inner circle guys. If you've read a whole lot about the life of Jesus, John was pretty much there every time Jesus did something, John was around. In fact, he was called the, the beloved disciple, and he was present for a lot of different moments in Jesus' life, whether it was the transfiguration or even at the foot of the cross, John stood there with Jesus' mother. And in this moment where, where John writes this letter of 1 John, there's a lot of false teaching that have begun to pop up in the church. And so John's like, man, I'm going to address that. I'm going face first for it. And so John begins to write this. I want us to read 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. It says, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. Now let's just kind of stop right there. 17 times um, in the letter of 1 John, and it's not very long if you've read it, 17 times John uses the phrase, the world. Now, this phrase literally means the world. Um, But now contextually, what is he talking about? I think the best contextual definition for, for what he means by do not love the world is do not love the cultural system of the world. Do not love the, the spirit of the world. So what, is that, what does that look like, though? Like, what does that mean for us to think that, live that out, flesh that out today? I think it, it means something like this. It means I just want to have enough to do whatever I want, whenever I want, with whomever I want, with as little challenges or obstacles as possible. And those challenges may be pain, maybe struggle, maybe hardship. And what we're basically saying in that thought, that mindset, that even lifestyle is, I want to build a life where God isn't really necessary. I mean, I know he's there. I know he's the big man upstairs, but he's not necessarily needed in my daily life. John says, don't love that desire. Don't live in that desire. Because when you do, it's evident that true love of God the Father is not in you. You know, we have to be honest that no matter where you are in life today, whether, you know, you're a single parent, newly married, about to have kids, you're retired, grandkids, great-grandkids, no matter where you are, we all imagine, look forward to a life in our next coming season of more ease than we do of struggle. Are you with me? Okay. Like today, you're not going to stand around the grill and talk about, man, I can't wait to think about in five years all the struggle and the pain that's going to come. It's going to be so good. Like you're you're not going to sit under the fireworks tonight and imagine the struggles and the hardships of the next 10 years. That's just not where your mind's going to go. We, We look forward to a future more defined by ease than we do by struggle. And we as a people, we could even say we drift towards inactivity. We drift towards laziness. All right. 
right? Don't believe me? Let me put some flesh on that, okay? How about for all my married people? All right, I'm about to kind of prove it. Husbands and wives, now think about before you ever got married. Ladies, stay with me. You don't have to swing an elbow. Just amen. That's all, okay? Before you got married, when you were in that dating season, some of you had that guy who would pursue you, and he pursued you by writing you poems, didn't he? Okay? He would do his best. Okay, it sounded like Dr. Seuss. It did not sound like Dr. Seuss, but like he would write poems for you. Some of you, he made mixtapes, all right, of your favorite jams. Are you with me? Okay, he made some of our teenagers, what's a mixtape? Okay, don't worry about it, Spotify generation. Okay, you're not with me, okay? And ladies, before you got married, he might have even known what a florist was and like where the local one was and how to kind of, okay, you with me? All right, now ladies, to get your man to put his phone down or leave the front of the TV to come sit down at the table is like asking him to climb Mount Everest. Are you with me? All right, because we, we as a people, we drift towards what's easy, laziness, inactivity. Okay, another place we could see that fleshed out um, in our society is at your local Walmart, okay? When it comes to the buggy return rack in the parking lot, anybody with me, okay? Some of you, I can see that. It's your thing too, all right? Listen, like, some people clearly have not read the instruction labels on how that thing works, okay? What actually happens is you roll the buggy to your car, you unload the bags in it, and then you know that little thing that takes up parking spots about every seventh or eighth one, that little silver? You put the buggy inside of that. Like, you gotta, you gotta push it in there, all right? Some of you, you're, you're the ones who do that, aren't you? You're the ones who, some of you are the ones who don't do that, and you need to repent is what you need to do, Okay. <laughs> Because I know how it works. You're like, oh, three spots down. That's so far to walk. I just don't think I can do it. And so you try to wedge your buggy, all right, in between cars. Now, if the cars get parked too close together, you can't wedge it there. You got to go over to the next set of cars. And if it's on the hill, you got to position the wheels in just a way so that it doesn't, uh-huh. Some, I'm reading your mail for some of you. You know who you are, okay? All right, we'll be counselors available at the end. It'll be good. All right, but that's, that's what we do. We as a people we drift towards laziness. We drift towards inactivity. And what I want to do today is I want to talk about what, what we're going to call a counterfeit comfort. A counterfeit comfort. Now think about this. We all know what a counterfeit is. A counterfeit um, is a close representation of something that has value, but the counterfeit has no value. Okay? And, and what I'm saying today is I believe that there, there could be many of us who are chasing a counterfeit comfort, meaning we're chasing something that ultimately you'll never really catch, that you'll never really grab. And so what I want to do is I want to I look at two realities of what happens when we chase counterfeit. We're going to look at those two realities, and then we'll look at two ways to combat that in just a moment. Okay? So number one, if you're taking notes, is this chasing counterfeit comfort reveals spiritual emptiness. Chasing counterfeit comfort reveals spiritual emptiness. Um, chasing this, this desired level of American dream, however you want to say that, really it reveals what John said just a moment ago, 1 John 2.15. Let's look at it again, 1 John 2.15. He says, do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is what? Is not in them. John is describing what spiritual emptiness looks like. And I'll just be real. Like every time I've read that verse, that passage, in my like almost 30 years of following Jesus, I get convicted. Like it gets, you know, like Holy Spirit, I feel like falls on me in that moment because I'm like, well, maybe I just got a new pair of shoes and like I really like my new pair of shoes. Does that mean I don't love God? All right, or, or maybe we got a vacation that's coming up, and I'm, I like, I'm looking forward to going. I think the trip's going to be fun, get to go with my family. I'm really excited about that. Well, in light of what John just said, does that mean I don't love God? Because I'm going to say maybe I love my vacation. Okay, 
Now hear me, I, be, I don't believe John's saying that because you got the new pair of shoes that you like or you're looking forward to vacation, I don't think he's saying that, doesn't mean, that means that you don't love God. What he's saying is the problem becomes when, when those things become the motivating factor, when they become the source of joy, true joy and fulfillment in your life, then there becomes an issue because you haven't allowed a part of the love of God, the full love of God, to penetrate and fulfill your life. Okay, think with me for a moment. What would it look like if you let the love of God truly come into your life? And here's what I mean. What, what if you let the love of God for the poor truly permeate you? What if, what if you let the love of God for the broken, the outcast, the lonely, the down and out, what if you let that love of God penetrate and get deep inside of you. I think what would happen is you would no longer be living for comfort, but you would be disturbed for what disturbs the heart of God. Kind of makes me think about um, my friend Scott Fortenberry. Some of you know Scott. Scott preached here just a few months ago. He's preached a few times before. Um, my wife and I had the pleasure of meeting Scott and his wife Candace about three or four years ago at a church planting assessment here in Mississippi as we were talking about um, what it looks like to, man, launch churches and reach people who are far from God, Scott and his wife at that time, they have five kids, okay, which means they drive a bus everywhere they go. And um, Scott and his family were living in Florida. He was serving at a church, doing really, really well. God was blessing, doing great things. But Scott and Candace really began to feel that God was moving them. He was calling them to something different. And part of what that was was to move to Mississippi, where he had some roots, to plant and begin a new church, it wasn't just anywhere in Mississippi, but he very specifically felt called to the city of Jackson, and not just anywhere in the city of Jackson, but he felt very called to Midtown Jackson, the heart of Midtown in the middle of Jackson. And as Scott began to kind of share with many people about um, in the calling, the vision that God was calling them in to walk in obedience, um, Scott began to share things like that in this neighborhood, 65% of the people in that neighborhood live on $15,000 a year or less that 70% of the households in that neighborhood were female-only-led households. Another 10% of those households were male-only-led households, which meant 80% of the households in this area were single-parent homes with kids and many times multiple kids. And as Scott began to lay this out, then people began to, to look at Scott and question and go like, bro, like, that sounds like the hardest place ever to launch a church. Like, are you, you going to move your family from Florida to, to do that? Like, bro, that sounds so uncomfortable. And the more I got to know Scott and his heart, the more I began to understand that Scott wasn't worried about what was comfortable, but he was worried about what was obedient to show and demonstrate the love of God to people who were broken and struggling and down and out. And that's exactly what's happened over the last three plus years through Soul City Church in the heart of Midtown as they've um, been given people jobs and as they've fed tons of people and, and ultimately shared the love and the hope of God. You see, that, that's what happens when the love of God permeates and gets deep inside of us. I love how, how Paul says it. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5, which is actually the foundational passage, part of the foundational passage of the exchange. Here's what Paul says. Look at it, verse 14. It says, for Christ love, I love this word, compels us. It drives us. It moves us because we are convinced that one, Jesus died for all. Therefore, we're we're all with him. And he died for all that those who live, those who have life, those who are in Christ should 
should no longer live for themselves. What a thought. But for him who died for them and was raised again. God's love compels us to something that's bigger than ourselves. You see, when you chase counterfeit comfort, it will reveal the spiritual emptiness of your heart. But there's a second thing, and it's this. Chasing counterfeit comfort eliminates our need for faith. Chasing counterfeit comfort will eliminate our need for faith. In in Hebrews chapter 11, if you've read that chapter before, it's called called the Hall of Fame of Faith, the faith chapter. Um, the, The writer lays out all of these different key Old Testament stories and kind of a storyboard of all these different things that happen. But there's one common phrase that starts every story in this whole chapter. And it says, by faith, by faith, by faith, Moses, who had a speech impediment, goes to the most powerful man in all the land, Pharaoh, to help rescue God's people. Um, By faith, Abraham left the home of his um, ancestors to go to a land where he didn't even know where God was sending him. Ultimately, it would be the promised land, but by faith he went. By faith, Noah built a boat because he told people it was going to storm to people who'd never heard of a storm before. By faith, by faith. You see, not a single one of these stories were people living in comfort, but every single one of these people were living for a burden that if God had not shown up, they would have been helpless and they would have looked like fools. So let let me kind of ask you a question today. Um, What part of your life right now would you be utterly helpless if God did not show up and intervene in? I'm going to ask it again because I want it to really, I want you to think about it. Like what what part of, of your life, of your family, of your purposes, of your career, what part of what you're living for right now Would you be in in deep water, all right? Would you be utterly helpless? Would you have no answers for if God did not show up and move? That it's totally dependent on him. What what part of your life? Now, here's the deal. For for some of you, maybe that question is really hard to answer because you've created life and planned it out and organized it in such a way That if you were honest, faith and God aren't really necessary. Now, you know he's there. You know he exists. He's there if you need to throw up a 911 call to him. But you've laid out life in such a way that faith and God maybe aren't even really necessary. You see, the writer of Hebrews would also say this in Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 verse 6, look at the beginning of it. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. See, I believe God's love in us will create more disruption than ease. When you get this inside of you, allow the love of God to compel your life. You cannot pursue something as shallow as comfort. Let me challenge you with this statement. You cannot pursue comfort and walk by faith at the same time. Some of you need to write that down. You cannot pursue comfort and walk by faith at the same time. You you can pursue one or you can pursue the other, but you can't simultaneously chase comfort and faith at the same time. It 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 will not pan out. See, chasing counterfeit comfort reveals a spiritual emptiness in us, um, and it eliminates our need for faith. 
So, so if that's what chasing the counterfeit, the thing that you'll never fully catch, that maybe you think it's in your grasp, maybe if I get one more zero on the paycheck, if I can move up to this house, if I can get that job, if I can obtain that relationship, like, like that thing that's really counterfeit that you think is going to bring comfort, if that's what that looks like, then what's real? What's authentic? What's the other end of things? I believe our lives have to be built and led in such a direction that it flows out of the truth of God's word. And Paul speaks to comfort, okay? He says this about a biblical perspective of comfort. If you want to flip over, um, we're going to read out of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. You can see it on the screen. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 3. Paul says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all, what does it say? Comfort. He says that thing that you're longing for, that comfort that you want to feel, it is real, all right? But it's in the embodiment of who God is. It's the character of who he is. So what does the God of comfort do for us? Look at this, 2 Corinthians 1 verse 4, keep reading. He who comforts us in all our troubles. Just pause there for a moment. I I don't want to pass by the fact that some of you today, you're in the troubles that Paul talks about. You're, You're in the brokenness or the pain or the hardship of life. And what Paul is saying is that there is a God of all comfort and he is with you. He is present. But then it says, it goes on, it says, why does he comfort us? If he's present, he's with you, why would he comfort you? You ready? He says, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort that we ourselves receive from God. Verse 5, for just as we, just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Don't miss that, church. If you're a follower of Jesus... What I just read in verse 5 is part of your life story. That part of what you will live out is the suffering of this world, the sufferings of Christ, as Paul says. Life will bring real suffering. But Paul says comfort can be found in a real God. There is real comfort. You see, when our understanding for living flows not out of what we see on social media, not out of what we read in culture, but when we see in God's word and that becomes the foundation of our life, then I believe we'll begin to realize that there's some things we need to stop chasing, counterfeit, and there's some things we need to begin to embrace. Okay, and so if we're going to stop chasing those counterfeit things that that reveal spiritual emptiness and create a life without faith, what, what do we need to embrace? In the midst of the pain, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of when life doesn't go our way, what can we embrace? All right, I want to give you a couple of things. The first is we embrace divine discomfort. I believe there's a calling to embrace in our life, in our faith, divine discomfort. It means that we need to learn how to embrace and endure discomfort and even pain. That there becomes like a level of, of open arms to even a level of suffering that we might experience in our life. Let's talk about food for a second. Today we're going to eat a lot of food probably, okay? Most of us love some chicken fried steak. All right, it's kind of been heavy today. Can we talk about food for a second? That'd be good, all right? My chicken fried steak. Can we agree chicken fried steak is comfort food, all right? Can I just get an amen? Some of you just like, you just remembered your grandma and your mama's country fried chicken steak, all right? You're like, yep, gravy on top. Bring it, okay? Extra gravy on top. Can we just, that, that is comfort food, all right? Squats, on the other hand, not comfortable. Can we get on board with that? Can we just all, some of you are like, no, I like squats. No, you don't, all right? That was high school, okay? Get over yourself, all right? Okay, 
Country fried steak, comfort food, squats, uncomfortable. Are you with me, okay? Now listen, if you do one of, or if you do either one of those one time, no big deal. Probably not a big effect. Now, if you do either one of those three times a week for five years, you got two totally different outcomes, okay? All right, over here, you got heart disease and bay window, okay? Over here, you got bulging muscles and everybody's like, you work out, don't you, okay? Listen, here's, here's where I'm headed. Discomfort produces something in us. Discomfort can produce something in us. James would speak to this in a verse maybe that you're familiar with, but there's a nuance of this verse that I think needs to resonate today. James would say it this way. James chapter 1, verse 2. Watch this. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, James, what are you saying? How in the world could we think that? Well, because you know that the testing of your faith, we're going to come back to that phrase, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let let perseverance finish its work in you so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Can we just all agree, like most of us probably don't like to take tests, okay? Some of you nerds in the room, it's awesome, okay? But as summertime students, no tests right now. I was not loving tests taking in my day either. It's the same way in the testing of our faith. Now, what James is saying here when he uses that phrase, testing of faith, it's not the pass-fail mindset, okay? So don't, don't think school. But what James is saying there, the original Greek word um, is the word dikimion, and this word is the same word used to describe what a silversmith would do with raw silver, all right? Now, probably not many acting silversmiths here today with us on July 4th, all right? So let me kind of give you a little refresher. Like a silversmith would take that raw silver and they would put it in a bucket or a pot and then underneath it, they would start this just like flaming hot fire so that it would get really, 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 really hot. And in the, in the testing, James 1, in the, the testing of the heat over this raw silver, the impurities would begin to rise up. And the role of the silversmith is that they would take an instrument, they would take a tool, and they would begin to, to scrape off and take off the impurities of the silver. And the word is that they, they, could, they could do it in such a way that they could do it again and again and again and again, that they would rub it off in such a way that, that the silversmith could get to the point where they could even begin to see the reflection of their own face in the raw silver. Now stay with me. Let me ask you, what if, what if the sufferings that you have experienced, that you are experiencing? What if if the pain that you have endured is God's way of saying, I want to reveal the sin or maybe even the selfishness of your heart? I want to reveal the things in you that don't bear the image of Christ. What if through all of this, um, your, your sins, your struggles, those impurities of your life could rise to the surface in such a way that your, your creator, your father of compassion, of comfort, was able to remove those things so that he might see more of the image of himself, his righteousness, his holiness in your life. You see, it's, it's, the, it's the testing of your faith that, that hardship, discomfort can produce something in us. And I realize for some of you, man, it's, it's a very real thing. Like it's a very painful thing that maybe even you're, you're living in. Maybe it's <clears throat> like it's, it's a seemingly unreachable wayward child. And man, as a, parent, <clears throat> as a parent, there's nothing more weighty than that. Maybe for you, it's the, uh, it's the shock or the difficulty of health report that you've just been handed. And maybe not even many people know, but you're processing on what to do. Or, or maybe you're in a marriage but yet you've never been more lonely. 
or maybe today it's, it's chemical or it's, it's real addiction that you're battling right now in your life. I mean, you just feel so much in despair. But what if, what if the pain and the hardship that you're experiencing could produce something more valuable in your life than anything else? You know, when I look at the, the 37 years or so of my life, some of the richest moments of my life, and I've, I've experienced a lot of great joys and blessings, but some of the most richest moments of my life are when I can look back and I can remember and I can recall and know the presence of God with me, the God of all comfort, in moments of my pain, in moments of hardship, in moments of struggle. And that's a part of your life. That's a part of following Jesus, and Paul would say it this way, Romans chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Paul sounds a lot like James. He says, because we know that, that suffering, that testing produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And verse 5, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love, that love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. God's, God is with us who has been given to us. You remember where we started today? Why, why are we even pursuing um, this counterfeit comfort? Why? Because there's a level of the love of God that's not penetrated our life. We've not fully grasped it. We're not fully living in it. But, but Paul says when that happens, you can look at your pain and you can still praise God in it because you realize there's a purpose that he's accomplishing in your life. And so what happened? We begin to embrace divine discomfort. God, that doesn't feel good. God, that may not be how I prayed. That may be not what I was looking for. That may not define American dream. But God, you, you're the God of comfort, and you're with me, and you're in me, and you're doing something through me. And so there's, there's a level of a calling on us to embrace divine discomfort. But th there's one more thing I want us to grasp today. When we seek what's real, when we seek what's authentic, we can embrace that this is not your best life. That, that this is not your best life. That in a culture chasing this so-called American dream, aiming to live their best life now, uh, we all have to embrace this is not the best life. Paul says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Look at what he writes. Yet what we suffer now, in other words, it's going to happen, what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he, God, will reveal to us when? Later. When, when will he reveal, he will reveal it later. This is not your best life. If you're in Christ, okay, don't mishear me, God has a good life promise for you, but the fullness of it is not here. It is not this little temporary thing we're running around doing for a little while. No, it's, it's not. And Paul says, actually, what is to come, all right, it's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth comparing or speaking in the same sentence with the glory that will be revealed that we will understand later. And he goes on in Romans 8, and this is what Paul says in verse 19. He says, for all creation is waiting eagerly. All creation, all people, all things are waiting eagerly for that future day, the later day. When God will do it, when he will reveal who his children really are. You see, you and I are wired with a longing for eternity. Like, like you came out of the box, still tag attached to you with a long, a heartbeat in you, whether you realize it or not, that long for eternity. Scripture says so. Scripture says that God has put eternity in your heart. 
And so this, this drive to kind of obtain, that's sort of part of the American dream, to attain and work hard, like some of that is, is very God-given things, but where the problem becomes is when we try to fulfill that desire with temporary things. Because you see, trying to fulfill an eternal longing with a temporary comfort will always leave your life empty. Let's say it a little louder for somebody online. Trying to fill your life, an eternal calling, longing, with a temporary comfort will always leave your life empty. It will always fall short. Why? Because this, this is not your best life. It's not. So, so what do you do? Okay, now if, if like that's what counterfeit produces, if, if this is not my best life, then what do I do in this life? Well, I think Jesus gives us a couple of verses that I want us to see. And, and in these verses, here's ultimately what Jesus is saying. He's saying, let go. Let go of what? Let go of chasing the counterfeit. Realize this, it's not what culture says it's cracked up to be. Here's, here's what Jesus says, Luke chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus says it this way. Look, at it. he says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, for his purposes, will save it. In other words, what good is it, verse 25, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world, all the comfort that this world can give, buy, buy it all. But what good is that when you will lose and forfeit your very self? Do you catch what Jesus said? He, he says, if you, if you hold on to your life, get all that you can, Jesus says, ultimately, you'll lose it. But, but if you live life like this, Jesus, this is maybe not the life I would desire. This is maybe not what I, what I thought I would have. This is how the relationship I thought it would go. But God, I'm, I'm surrendering. I'm giving it to you. I'm realizing you're the God of all comfort. You're present with me. When you live that life, he says, you'll save it. You'll find what's true. You'll find what's eternal. For some of you, um, the name Mike Everett will, will mean something to you. For some of you, never had the opportunity to, to, to meet Mike um, I met Mike back in around 2010 at the church where I was previously serving. Um, we got connected there, and then when Mike heard that we were, we were planting and launching a new church here in the city of Pearl, he was one of the very first people uh, to show interest in what God was going to do. Um, see, Mike had lived in Pearl for a long time. He loved Jesus. He loved the church, and so he was excited about the new work that God might do. Um, Mike was also known as, as Santa Mike. Some of you may know Mike as Santa Mike more than you know him as Mike because he was literally like a Santa Claus, literally. Uh, Santa Claus at malls and different um, holiday festivities. I think I've even got a little throwback picture here of me and Mike. How about that? Look at that. Both of us looking a lot younger All right, in that moment. Um, that was Mike at, at our Christmas in the Park event back in, in 2014. Um, you know, Mike, he, he in a lot of ways became sort of a staple around the exchange for a number of years. He would, he would literally stand at the front door, and for everybody who came in every single Sunday, he would, he would learn your name, and he would call you by name because he wanted everybody to feel welcomed. He wanted everybody to know that they belonged in the family of God. And um, Mike and I, we got to share a lot of time together. Um, and so in the time, I got to learn a lot about what Mike loved, what he enjoyed. He enjoyed fishing. Um, he had loved reading books on faith. He had loved being outdoors and doing different projects. And he also loved ministry. A lot of people didn't know, but Santa Mike in his early adult years um, served as a pastor. And so he became a special encourager in my life. And, and so we got to spend a good bit of time together. But in our time that we would spend together, Mike would often talk of heaven, and you see, Mike, was, he was in his 60s, and like he got around really, really well and you know, lived by himself and went fishing and did all these different projects at his house. But he would often, he would often think of and he would often speak of heaven. 
And I'll never forget um, the day that I went over to his house, I grabbed Subway sandwiches, and we sat at his kitchen table. And Mike, over lunch that day, began to share with me that when he passed um, at his funeral that he wanted me to, to speak. And, you know, when Mike would, would talk about heaven, when he would talk about death, he never talked about it in fear. But he always talked about it with, with great expectancy. And so as we sat over lunch that day over the Subway sandwiches, I, I really felt that that conversation was super premature because I thought, man, we've got years, even decades left. What he didn't know and what I didn't know is that within about 10 months of that conversation, Mike would develop cancer that would take over his body and would ultimately and pretty quickly take his earthly life. And as we carried out Mike's wishes and I, and I stood at his funeral, I was able to stand in confidence and declare that, that Mike was a man who loved Jesus and he looked to heaven with great expectancy. That, that he was a guy who lived on this little temporary thing we're doing here in this life and he refused to believe that this was his best life. <laughs> that he lived with so much hope and so much confidence that, that his best life was still yet to come because it would be when he was in the presence of Jesus, his Savior. See, Paul says, no, no eye has seen, no mind has conceived, no ear has heard what God has prepared for those who love him. And so church, today, as we begin this series of conversations in a culture that lives and breathes for what we might call the American dream, could we just begin to declare today that the chasing of comfort is ultimately a shallow counterfeit, that it'll never fully measure up. You'll never completely get there. And instead, as the people of God living for something bigger than this life, could we begin to, gay, to say, maybe even in a weird way, but in a, in a kingdom-minded, God-centering way, God, we embrace divine discomfort. But even in the midst of things that are hard and difficult and painful, God, we realize you're doing a, a purifying work in our life. And maybe in that season that I'm in, that I'm going to walk through, that you would, you would clean it up. And God, you would, you would remove those things in my life so that you could see your image in me more clearly. And would we refuse to believe that this life, this little temporary thing that we're doing, that it would give us what is our best life, but that ultimately our best life is only prepared with the one who loved us, created us, and calls us to his presence. Thanks for listening to this message from The Exchange. If you would like to talk to someone about your faith journey, you can contact us through our website, www.theexchange.cc or by calling or texting 601-397-6111. Now let's go be the church.